Hey everyone, Trace here. And as you already know, the episode you're about to listen to is on Brian Singer's 1998 Stephen King adaptation, Apt Pupil. Joe and I felt it irresponsible to discuss the film without also discussing the sexual assault allegations against Singer, especially given the fact that one of them allegedly took place on the set of this film. Given the content of this discussion, which includes accounts of the assaults from some of his accusers, Joe and I thought it best to offer a content warning for this episode. And if you or someone you know experienced sexual assault, you are not alone. There are resources that can help you heal and offer support for both survivors and people close to them. This includes the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, but we will link to other resources in the show notes. And now, on to the show. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, I used to chase girls and now I chase old men. We're talking, I don't want to drag you down with me, but I will. And we're talking grooming for sociopaths. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking via fucking each other. <laughs> Although not enough. Although, ooh, no, oh, God, I should not Joe, say that. <laughs> you're really just throwing us in there. Um, Yeah, everyone, we are discussing Brian Singer's Stephen King adaptation, Apt Pupil. And, um, mm. well, it's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, folks, we were joking off mic that this is going to be a very lighthearted conversation that's not going to touch at all about the problematic director or the Nazism or the content warning, severe animal abuse in this movie, just lots of lighthearted stuff. Lots of things. Yeah. So again, proceed with caution. We will probably be getting a little heavy in parts of this episode. Although at the same time, I, I well, I will argue before we get too deep into this, I don't think this movie goes heavy enough, but mm -hmm. I'll leave it there before we bring in our guest. <laughs> right. Everyone, she is the co-host of The Losers Club, an award-winning weekly series that chronologically digs through the work of Stephen King. Uh, she's also the host of The Lady Killers, a bi-weekly podcast that looks at lady killers. Uh, you may also remember her from our episodes on Possession and The Final Girls. Please welcome back Jen Adams. Hello. 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 I'm so happy to join you for this lighthearted episode, this feel-good <laughs> romp through Stephen King. So excited. <laughs> well, I'm curious, Jen, had you seen this movie before? Yes, but it has been a long time. I think I probably saw it. I know I didn't see it when it came out, but I probably saw it about a year or two later, and I don't think I've seen it since. But I have read the book several times since it. So, right. Okay, so gun to your head, book or movie? Oh, book, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's never a question with her because she is no, such yeah. a Stephen King fangirl. But I also wanted to give a shout out that the reason we're covering this this week is because the film is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Oh, well, this was actually a first time watch for me. Um, I had heard about it a lot, but I just feel like it's never... Well, this isn't why I haven't seen it. I just feel like it's never really talked about that much. But it's always been on my list as one of those things where I'm like, I mean, hell, Ian McKellen playing a Nazi, Brad Renfro playing a huge asshole in this movie. That sounds fun. 
<laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, but it's not really a fun movie. It's very, very dark. And I think that's one of the reasons I don't revisit it. You know, and to be honest, of the four or of the three novellas in different seasons, which is where this uh, this novella comes from. This is the one I read the the least, you know, because oh, okay. it's just really dark. It's really heavy, you know, and I like it, but it's it's not fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll dig into some of the differences uh, probably in the production. I mean, I, I have like a bulleted list of a handful because I mean, it is a short story. So it's not like I have a laundry list of things to go through. Well, it's a Stephen King novella. So it's like the length of a regular person's book <laughs> that's true <laughs> so joe i mean because you you programmed this i'm curious did you grow up with this one no this this is not a favorite of mine it's one that i believe i saw on video so i didn't see this in theaters although this was a high point of when my sister and i were going to the movies but um yeah this one intrigued me because it did look so dark and i knew that brad renfro was a big rising star at the time and of course folks he tragically passed in 2008 from a drug overdose and i had heard a lot of people talk about him as a really promising rising star but then he tragically died in 2008 of a drug overdose and i feel like a lot of people talk about him in the same way we talk about somebody like river phoenix where they just never really had the time to get there so yeah that that was basically my experience with the mm -hmm. film but much like jen said it's just so dark and i do find the pacing particularly in the last act is yeah. a little bit wonky so it doesn't really even feel like it comes to a satisfying climax in a way mm -hmm. um yeah i i would agree with that and again like when you know what happens to the book ending you're kind of like oh but mm -hmm. but it was a very intentional thing on on singer's part and him and screenwriter brandon boyce to not replicate that ending they didn't want to do it because they didn't think they could shoot it better than king wrote it hmm well but then why are you adapting the story? You know, <laughs> well, like that's I, the point. I don't know. That's my, my and we can talk about this later. But that's my biggest problem is that they did not use the book's ending, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I do wonder, though, if it's maybe just a bit too dark for what's essentially a mainstream Hollywood release. But on the Renfro thing, though, I don't, I don't know about y'all, because like I, so I feel like a lot of people my age would have grown up with him in the movie Tom and Huck with him and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Um, uh. I actually grew up with him because I was a kid who was really into John Grisham stuff when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. So the client, yes, I grew up his his feature debut, the client. One of my, I, for some reason, like my seven year old ass watched the client so <laughs> many times as a kid. <laughs> I watched it a lot, too. It's good. <laughs> and Susan Sarandon, too. She's great. Yeah, because my mom was a lawyer, and so she would read the books, and I would always see the books in the bookshelf, and I was like, well, I want to do that, but like they were you know, a little bit too mature for me to read. Um, but The Client was one of his PG-13 adaptations, so I could watch that. Well, and he's a Tennessee boy, so... You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm a fan of Brad Rimbaud, <laughs> although he's from Knoxville, not Nashville. So, well, OK, well, so let's let's jump right into this then. And most of this information comes from various interviews and editorials from magazines in the late 90s uh, around the time the film came out. These include Entertainment Weekly, the Chicago Tribune the Los Angeles Daily News, and the Austin American Statesman. As you said, Jen, the film was adapted from the Stephen King novella of the same name, which was published in 1982 as part of his short story collection, Different Seasons. And there actually was a version of this film that was supposed to be made in the 80s. Uh, producer Richard Kobritz, who had produced other Stephen King adaptations like Salem's Lot and Christine, optioned the feature film rights to the novella, meeting with actor James Mason to play the, the novella's war criminal, Kurt Dusender, who, of course, would eventually 
actually be played by Ian McKellen. But Mason died in July of 84 before production as a result of a heart attack. Um, then they went to Richard Burton for the role. Well, Burton died in August that same year, so he couldn't <laughs> do it either. Cool. So by 1987, production began with Nicole Williamson cast as Kurt Dusender and 17-year-old Ricky Schroeder as Todd Bowden. Um, wow. That would have been very interesting. I also really want to see what, what the 80s version of this movie would have looked like. Mm-hmm. Right. But in that year, Alan Bridges began direction of the film with a script co-written by Ken Wheat and his brother Jim. After 10 weeks of filming, the production suffered from a lack of funds from its production company, and the film had to be placed on hold. Kubert sought to revive production, but when the opportunity came a year later, little Ricky Schroeder had grown too much in that year, so they couldn't continue filming. Basically, all the usable footage was abandoned, which uh, I think amounted to about 45 minutes of a completed film. Come on. I I understand that there are things that go beyond people's capacity. Like, you know, you can't control how much Ricky Schroeder grows. And obviously, then you're like, oh, well, we don't have a movie. But just <laughs> the number of films that I would like to see that were either abandoned or something mm-hmm. went wrong. It's like, you had to know somebody was going to want to see that someday. Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is also a time, though, where like, public access to those things like dvds didn't exist you know we didn't have special Mm -hmm. features on things so i imagine back in the 80s they were like well who the fuck cares exactly Yeah. yeah it's like this is just an incomplete film when the original option to the novella expired in 1995 stephen king sued to get the rights back and he got them so Brian Singer first read the novella when he was 19 years old, and when he became a director, he wanted to adapt it. Uh, so once King got those rights back in 1995, Singer asked his friend and screenwriter, uh, the aforementioned Brandon Boyce, who would go on to write such classics as Wicker Park and Venom, the monster slasher one, not um, the <laughs> Marvel one, uh, to write a spec script adapting the novella. They provided a first draft of their screenplay to Stephen King, as well as a copy of The Usual Suspects, which at that point hadn't been released yet. So it was like, a, hey, like here's my movie that I just made that's going to be maybe amazing. I don't know. Right. Wow, way to sell it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> here's this incredible movie. <laughs> I've actually never seen The Usual Suspects. I feel like I... I it was one of those things where I, I rented it like via Netflix mail when I was in high school, but I had already known the ending, and I think I started mm. it and I wasn't like... God, Joe, you're going to hate me. I wasn't in the mood for it because it was slower than I was anticipating. Right. (laughs) It's a classic teenage trace thing. Uh, Well, let me save everyone from sending you the message. It's well worth your time. It is great. And you get double the sexual predators for one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Starring old Kevin Spacey. Yep. (laughs) I don't know. How do y'all feel? Can can y'all watch movies with Kevin Spacey? Like now? Uh, Not really. Would you go back and watch Seven? Like, do you have a hard time watching Seven? I think I could watch Seven because I feel like he is such a small part of Seven, you know? Mm -hmm. But I don't think... I have not been able to watch House of Cards, and I loved House of Cards. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But other than that, I'm not the biggest Kevin Spacey fan, so... You know, it's it's not a huge... A huge loss. I'm not losing a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and maybe this is the place for us to start to dig into this a little bit because mm-hmm. we could have the same conversation about someone like Brian Singer. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't have to look at him, but his fingerprints are all over this film, X-Men mm-hmm. movies, other things like that. And 
I think this idea of separating the art from the artist is always just a little bit more complicated than we want to make it out to be. If we Mm -hmm. really like something, it's like, oh, yeah, I can totally separate it. That way I can keep watching my favorite. And if we don't like something as much or we haven't seen it, then we go, ooh, I don't know. So... I I think it's a conversation worth having, if only because we tend not to cover things that have sexual predators attached to them. And yet, uh, I mean, I don't know, Trace, we, I don't think we realize how bad a situation this was until we started to research it. But again, I think it's a conversation worth having. Yeah, I'm, um, so yeah, full disclosure, people behind the curtains, everyone, like, both Joe and I knew, like, okay, yeah, like, like, Brian Singer's known as the guy who likes to, uh, touch, uh, younger boys, uh, older teenagers, but definitely still minors, inappropriately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's called statutory rape, let's call it what it is. Yes, that's exactly what it is, and, but it's a thing where, you know, he's never been charged, but, like, Mm -hmm. Joe shared with me an article that The Atlantic did back in 2019, a very lengthy one, where we are interviewing, uh, uh, five different men, uh, uh, who have, uh, accused Singer of molesting or raping them, and it, um... Who I uh, it lays out a pattern of behavior over 20 years and it does involve the production of this movie. So we will talk about it. There is a very public lawsuit attached to one particular scene that we'll go into. But yeah, I mean, we wanted to reference it off the top because it does seem like, you know, we're saying, hey, everybody watch this movie. And we're not suggesting that, like, you go out and endorse Brian Singer. That's absolutely not what we're saying. But we did want to have a conversation about how does art change when you know the details behind the people who are making it. And Jen, I'm curious, too. I mean, like, you don't have to chime in if you don't want to on this. But for me, it's always a thing where and I feel like we've seen it with filmmakers like uh, Roman Polanski, um, uh, uh Oh my God! Who's the other one? Uh, Woody Allen. Woody Allen. Yes. Thank oh, you. There yeah. you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, of course, Victor Salva. But it's always a thing mm-hmm. where I would never. <laughs> I understand why anyone would be like, "I'm not watching that person's movies again. I can't do it." Like whatever. Blah mm-hmm. blah blah. Totally understand. I do think there is a tendency, um, specifically on social media, to be sanctimonious and have the moral high ground f- against people who do still choose to watch those types of movies and that's kind of where i run into an issue with this because yes and we'll talk about this in the context of this particular film i think when you know about brian singer there are a lot of scenes in this movie that you're kind of like oh this cringe it's very cringe Mm -hmm. it's very uncomfortable and i totally understand why anyone would say i can't watch that that is too much for me Mm -hmm. but at the same time i feel like more often than not someone like me or just plain me is judged for saying but i kind of find that interesting and fascinating to watch not that i'm getting deriving pleasure from it but more so that that i again i i think it's it it adds another albeit very uncomfortable layer to view a film or view a piece of art through yeah i agree and i think you know separating the art from the artist is always going to be complicated and i think a lot of it comes down to the individual like how much can you actually stomach is this going to be something that is going to be specifically triggering to me and i don't think any of us are like kicking back and throwing popcorn in our mouths and like having a good old time watching this movie like we're not celebrating brian singer and while i would never like begrudge anyone for not wanting to watch this movie i also think like we don't want to erase what happened because Mm. if we do, then we, you know, it just, it's something that we forget about. And I think like, this is also not exactly Jeepers Creepers, which is, 
you know, a movie about a monster. There's a lot in this movie, Apt Pupil, that is really relevant now and I think is worth a conversation. And so I think, you know, it's always better if you can do so without triggering yourself and if you can do so in a respectful way. I think talking more about things most of the time is better than trying to pretend mm. it's not there. You know what I mean? Yeah. See, I'm a huge fan of this idea. Like, we, we can't erase history. Like, this movie literally acknowledges that right like you can't just exactly shut the book yeah and say we've moved past it but mm -hmm. also i you know my personal way of approaching this is that i won't support new works from people so i'm not mm -hmm. going out there buying a ticket for a sexual predator right because i don't want to give the notion that we should continue to support them and give them millions of dollars to make art but if the movies have already been made the closest thing that they can get is tiny amounts of residuals so i stomach it maybe i lie to myself maybe yes i give myself permission to do the bad thing but i say you know what this movie is already out there let's at least then have a conversation about it that's it's oh god this is maybe i'm gonna be the asshole here but i i, I stream <laughs> this on amazon prime you know so it's included with my prime but i'm sure he'll get something out of it i guess i never think about like oh yeah how much money is he getting because again and look we can this can be a whole podcast episode in and of itself mm -hmm. but i'm very much a thing where it's like but it wasn't just brian singer that worked on this movie it wasn't just brian singer's baby like there were mm -hmm. hundreds of people maybe even more that worked on this film so i know this is a debate that is thrown around a lot but it's like are we going to discredit all these other people's work for mm -hmm. one horrendous person's involvement and granted it is right. a big involvement because he is the director of this film but i don't know like i me personally i don't have those kind of moralistic mm -hmm. quandaries with, with with that kind of a thing with like watching a film made by a predator right I think we're presenting the different sides of people's responsibilities or preferences, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things I really liked about what you said, Jen, is that people can choose. And mm -hmm. if they can do it, then that's fine for them. I think the other thing that we sometimes forget is that we don't get to control other people's choices. So you can mm -hmm. talk about it, but you shouldn't shame people for their decisions in the same way that you have to respect them if they say, you know what, I won't touch this with a 10 foot fucking pole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this will be the only time I fucking mention it because I feel like <laughs> I have to defend myself every fucking time. But no, I, I, I <laughs> look, I have both Jeepers Creepers, Scream Factory, Blu-rays on my fucking wall. I really like Jeepers Creepers 1 and 2. And I, again, mm -hmm. I understand all the shit with that. I totally understand it. It just really irks me when I see people publicly posting on, on like any, any social media. Like if you even moderately like these movies, if you still watch these movies, you are supporting a pedophile. You are supporting a predator. And... Uh, that's kind of when I get like my 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 panties in a wad <laughs> over mm -hmm. these kind of debates. Like again, like every, everyone has, I think, their own personal choice with how to interact and uh, with, with these types of films or TV shows or whatever. And I just don't think that you can impose judgment on someone else for whatever way they're choosing. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, you know, there's a difference between watching a movie and enjoying it and like singing its praises to the rooftops and like sure. wanting like, you know, evangelizing it and like trying to get more mm. people to watch it. I feel like there's a there's a big difference between that. And that's where I feel like I can t sometimes get turned off if there is a movie that is particularly offensive to me. And a lot of times it's just because of my own, you know, my own baggage that mm -hmm. I bring to the movies I watch. Um, but when somebody is kind of shoving that movie in my face, that's when I get turned off and I'm like, no, 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 no. But somebody just right. enjoying a movie that I don't like, I can just keep scrolling or I can just mm -hmm. watch a movie I do want to watch, you know? Yeah. 
But, um, okay, well, so put a pin in that. We'll come back to that when we get to the scene in question. Right. So, okay, so yeah, so um, Singer and Boyce provide a, a draft of their screenplay to King and, you know, the usual suspects. He was like, yeah, sure, and uh, optioned the rights to them for one dollar. <laughs> that sounds like such a Stephen King story. It is. Well, and so I was wondering if this is actually a dollar baby, which I don't think it technically would be. And, you know, for listeners who may not know Dollar Babies, he has a program where he's got like a selected list of short stories and he will license it to a filmmaker for a single dollar. But Mm. there are a lot of limitations. You cannot your film cannot be longer than 45 minutes. And I believe it has to there are limitations about where it can be screened. Um, and you only have the rights for a year but other than that you can do anything you want with it and so i wonder i wonder where this fits into the whole dollar baby of it because i know um i think the first dollar baby who's the guy who did shawshank redemption whose name i'm blanking on right frank Frank i think he Mm might have had the first actual one dollar right um Hmm. maybe for shawshank redemption no i think it was the woman in the room sorry is Shawshank, is it Shawshank and Rita Hayworth? I'm sorry, that's Rita Hayworth. I'm sorry, Shawshank and um, The Body slash Stand By Me. Those are both in different seasons as well, right? They are, yes. And it's Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. That's what you're thinking is what the novella is called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're both in The Shawshank Redemption. And also The Breathing Method, which is a fantastic novella. It's the only one that has not been adapted. It's my favorite. It's about a woman in the 40s who is a single mom and she's about, or she's about to give birth and she learns a new breathing method, which is Lamaze. It's fantastic. Everyone read it if mm. you have not already sorry i have to sing that praise every time because it's so good you mean there's something of stephen king's that hasn't been adapted yet <laughs> there <God>. yes <laughs> there are believe it or not there's quite a bit a lot of it has to do with female <laughs> characters um so hey guys get on it uh start adapting this stuff directors <laughs> tabitha why haven't more people adopted my women-centric tax <laughs> i know <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. Well, so Singer prepares for the film by reading books like the 1996 history book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, uh, which Mm -hmm. confirmed his beliefs that Nazi war criminals felt guiltless and matter of fact about what they did. Uh, He liked the idea of the infectious nature of evil. So to answer your question earlier, Jen, about why he didn't kind of uh, adapt more of like this about the novella like the ending specifically he (laughs) wanted it to be more of a thematic film uh, as opposed to Mm. an action oriented one so this notion that anybody has the capacity within them to be cruel if motivated properly uh, he also didn't think that the film or the novella was really about the holocaust believing that the Nazi war criminal could have been replaced by one of uh, Pol Pot's executioners or a mass murderer from Russia so because of this he didn't want to like highlight a lot of um, Nazi uh, like imagery like like swastikas Mm. or other symbols like that it was more about the general concept of evil as opposed Mm. to nazi evil right Mm -hmm. he turned down directing opportunities for films like the truman show and the devil's Mm. own after the success of the usual suspects because he wanted to do this movie so badly but also he was financially supported by super producer scott rudin who i think we just talked about a couple weeks ago in our sleepy hollow episode joe um Mm -hmm. They gave him a million dollars towards pre-production, and they were going to start filming in June of 1996, but Singer and Rudin got into a fight, <laughs> and the start date was pushed back and then canceled. So Rudin's out. Singer and his production team had to uh, find other financing. So Mike Medovov, a former chairman of TriStar Pictures, rescued the production with the financial backing of his production company, Phoenix Pictures, and gave them, instead of $1 million, $14 million to make this movie. There we go. So, okay, they make this shit, and Singer, (laughs) 
Look, we'll, we'll talk about the other stuff later. But Singer previewed <laughs> the final cut of the film at the Museum of Tolerance's L.A. Holocaust Center to assess feedback from rabbis and others about referencing the Holocaust. And he got a positive response. So he decided to proceed with the film's release. And while it was originally scheduled to be released in February of 1998, uh, the distributor moved the release date to autumn, feeling that it belonged, and I quote, alongside other more serious-minded films. <laughs> sure. Sure. I guess February is still like the, the doldrums of like uh, of horror yeah. movie releases back then. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but they premiered it at the Venice Film Festival in September of 98 and then released it wide on October 23rd of 98 in the United States and Canada. Uh, and it grossed 3.6 million opening weekend, placing it in ninth place at the box office. And just a, a little screen cap for you. Uh, the other new releases that weekend were Pleasantville and Ooh. the Kurt Russell starring Soldier. But again, mm -hmm. this weird shit with like a uh, box office. Pleasantville was the number one movie that weekend, but only made nine million dollars. Right. Wow. It was a smaller day and date. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apt people wouldn't even make that much money because it went on no. to gross $8.9 domestically uh, against that production budget of $14 million, making it a commercial disappointment. I didn't see the word flop thrown around, but this is basically a flop. I mean, this is a really hard subject matter to sell. I also mm -hmm. don't think that we were leaning into the Stephen Kingness of it, which I think probably would have helped, but maybe even back then didn't have the same cachet. Like when people think King, they think the really scary stuff, right? They're not always thinking about things like the Shawshank Redemption. Well, and the 90s weren't a great decade for King on screen either. You that know, is we true. have mm. misery in 90 and then Shawshank Redemption, obviously. But, you know, a lot of people didn't know that was Stephen King for a while. You know, right. there are still people that don't know that. And it also doesn't, unless you are a Stephen King fan and you are aware that it is Stephen King, it doesn't feel like what you think stereotypical Stephen King stuff should feel like. And apt mm -hmm. people, I would put in that category too. Like this, I can see the Kingisms in it and I can see where it falls falls in this collection of novellas because I know about him as a writer and I've read a lot of his other stuff and I'm just obsessed with him. But um, <laughs> but, but I feel like if the average like viewer didn't see his name attached to the credits, they would not walk away thinking, well, that sure felt like Stephen King, you know? So there's mm -hmm. not even a ton to like overtly lean into because a lot of what makes this Stephen King is in the writing also, you know? Yeah. Which do you feel like that gets lost in translation than in the film? I don't actually. No, I think because the story I think is um, an easily adaptable one. I don't know if easy is quite the right word, but like <laughs> it's not it's not supernatural. And so it right. is, you know, it's about the darkness in the human heart. And I think I, I can see the Kingism stuff in the text. But I also think that it's a pretty good adaptation of that darkness on screen, too. Yeah. You two may fight me on this, but considering Jen, you introduced me to it last year, this feels to me akin to something like a Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, oh, I love Dolores Claiborne. It's a little Claiborne. bit darker. The, <laughs> uh -huh. This one's more about like the darkness that lurks within you. And obviously, it's a very masculine dominated film compared to the matriarchy of Dolores Claiborne. But mm -hmm. it it feels like it's got this intersection with memory and trauma and mm -hmm. how do we deal with the dark impulses and can we all be driven to do bad things depending on the situation. That's interesting. I had not thought about those two in connection, but I could see it. And I think when I think of Dolores Claiborne, I think of like 
like you said, the matriarchy and the the specifically female identifying trauma in that book right. and the mm-hmm. good for her horror of it. And I would not put apt pupil in the good for her <laughs> horror category. But I I agree with you. There's a lot of like the secret, the this dark secrets that we keep and how they eat away at us. And I think this mm-hmm. just happens to have two villains at the center of it where Dolores Claiborne has one of my favorites of his characters. So. Yeah, but I agree. I do think there's connective tissue. Now I just want to go watch Dolores Claiborne in that blue fucking filter like that. It's so, it's so fucking good. good. And folks, if you want to hear Jen and I talk about it for like an hour and a half with Gina Oh, I think it's Radcliffe. two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, we do have an episode of White Ladies in Crisis slash... Did we do it on White uh, Ladies Psychoanalysis. I think we did a... Oh, no. Yeah, it was <laughs> good for her. You have too many podcasts you can't remember. <laughs> we do have too many podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> anyway just search for our names at Dolores Claiborne it'll come up Blah. and if you haven't seen Dolores Claiborne go watch it but content warning for child sexual abuse yeah. yes Yeah. anyway uh, so yeah ap- apt people had a mixed critical reception we're looking at a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6 out of 10 uh, mm-hmm. Letterboxd users have given it a 6.2 out of 10 so I mean it wasn't like it was, this, was, this film was trashed by critics it was just very muted and I think maybe that's why it, w- it didn't do better yeah I think that's also probably why we don't talk about it a bunch either right Mm. like when you look at this it's got ian mckellen doing a frankly fantastic performance i also think brad renfro is really really good in this movie i think singer's direction is also really good it's Mm -hmm. just that the subject matter and the fact that it didn't perform well means that it's something of a forgotten relic yeah but again like i just i don't know like this film does deal with very dark subject matter and i i I almost respect singer's uh hesitation to like not go all in on the nazism part and focusing on evil Mm -hmm. but at the (laughs) same time and again like i'll go through this list of how the book is different right now but i'm kind of like oh but there was a lot of like more more dark stuff that was left out of this that i kind of feel Mm -hmm. like the the movie ends up being like a kind of a diluted version of that novel or novella yeah because it's not like when i think about what was left out and i just reread the book the last two days so it's really top of mind but like a lot of what he left out wasn't the nazi stuff i think a lot Mm -hmm. of what he left out was like plot driven or just like because you can't put everything in a novella on the screen you know but yeah I, yeah, I agree. I do wish it went harder. <laughs> well, so here's our little laundry list, you know. So um, the novel takes place over a couple of years as opposed to just mm-hmm. one. So it starts when Todd's in junior high and it ends with him graduating from high school. Basically, there are a lot more murders in the novella. Both Kurt and Todd are murdering people um, isolated from each other <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> then learn that the other ones are doing it. There is a lot more animosity towards Jews in the novella. I think that's probably the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, again, he's, he's a Nazi. The novella's dream sequence uh has todd rape a 16 year old jewish virgin as a laboratory experiment as opposed to the shower scene we get in this movie there's a scene in the movie where todd can't perform with his girlfriend betty um, i'm sorry becky she's betty in the novella uh but in the book he has a he dreams about having her in a concentration camp where he can rape and torture her Mm-hmm. And lastly, yeah, the big change is the ending, where basically instead of uh, blackmailing the David Schwimmer character, <laughs> he basically goes on a shooting spree, um, holding himself up on the top of a, a overpass, shooting at passersby, where he is eventually gunned down by the police. And so the the novella ends with both of these characters being dead. There's also a little bit at the end um, of an implication that um, when Danker slash Dusender slash Ian McKellen dies, that he <laughs> is descending into a nightmare hell like he is getting some kind of like retribution 
Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I think that's what I'm missing from the end. It's not so much that I want to see Todd go on a killing spree because we actually don't see that in the book. It's just kind of like implied and it tells them, Mm. it tells us how long it takes them to like shoot him down, you know, but all of that occurs on one page. But I just, I wanted, I don't know. I have, I have conflicting thoughts and maybe we can talk about that when we do get to the end. But I also, Mm. uh, I'm recommending this book, but I also want to say it's a, it's a pretty tough read. There are some slurs in it. There's some dated King language that I think he's a lot better about now, but (laughs) you know, written in the seventies, there's, you know, just, just be prepared. There might be some triggering stuff in it. Yeah. Well, um speaking of triggering let's talk about the movie (laughs) there we go yeah so i'm not going to do explicit quotes but i am drawing some ideas and also i'm battling back against some ideas from an article called frames of evil the holocaust as horror in american film uh there's a, a chapter in there by carolyn picard and david frank and the reason that i bring this up off the top is because to me they conflate homophobia and homoeroticism and in a way they completely negate the idea that a viewer could be queer or that you could bring any kind of reading out of this from a queer perspective and they completely don't address the idea that brian singer is himself a gay man who is lensing the film and i think it's a really weird missed opportunity that frustrated me throughout most of the piece as is ian mckellen too yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, I, it, yeah, it's shocking to me that like academics would not frame part of their analysis through that lens. And I think it's a mm-hmm. very big oversight that mutes their argument. Mm. Okay. Okay, so with that in mind, now let's talk about the movie. So <laughs> the movie opens in 1984 with Todd Bowden, played by Brad Renfrew, and he is taking an interest in the Holocaust because his school apparently only because his school apparently only mandated one week on the subject. Just <laughs> only one. <laughs> uh. Everything you need to know. (laughs) So after school, he hits the library. We get a research montage as the credits are rolling. Um, Speaking of, by the way, also queer connection here. Both the editor and composer of this film is one John Ottman, queer man, Mm -hmm. director of Urban Legends Final Cut. But um, I wrote in my notes here, this score goes hard. (laughs) It goes real hard. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel like we've had a couple of weeks of very, very good scores between Sleepy Hollow and Friday the 13th Part 2. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. What do we... Oh, uh, you know what? I don't think next week's has a good... Uh, has a very, like, strong, bombastic score, but it's, um... It's bombastic! <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, we do end this montage with a image of a very young-looking Ian McKellen, and that picture is overlaid with Hitler, just in case you weren't certain whether we were going to do some Nazi symbolism. Yeah. I do also want to say, I kind of giggled and then felt bad about it when the and credit goes to David Schwimmer. Mm. Which is... Because I think they were going to have someone else play his part. And I mean, again, because this is 98, they're filming in 97. So he's in the midst of like friends mania at this point. But Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brian Singer apparently saw him in a stage play and really liked him and was like, yeah, sure. Be in my movie for two scenes. (laughs) I do remember because I was a big friends fan all the way through. And Mm -hmm. I remember hearing that he was going to be in this movie. And I think at the time it was like Courtney Cox was really the only one who was in movies that I was watching, you know, and this. But this feels like such a 
deviation from friends, you know, especially mm-hmm. the character he's playing. But this is what they would do, right? It was, mm-hmm. I've, I've joked with Trace about this offline in a couple of different instances because we've had conversations about the morning show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it very much seems like the friend stars were desperately trying to do what Disney starlets do, where yeah. they're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to take a very mature role and nobody can tell me otherwise. Right. Yeah. Courtney Cox is like, I'm going to be a bitch and scream and it's going to be glorious. Mm-hmm. And it was. And that's the thing, like, because it worked for Courtney Cox. I, none of the men in that show really ever broke out like film wise. I think Schroeder even does more producing gigs now. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I do appreciate the Aniston. I feel like it was well after Friends ended, like maybe even 10 years after Friends ended, where Aniston started really embracing her R-rated, like raunchy comedian. And I really appreciated yeah. that. Like the good yeah. girl. And I think. Was she, she yeah. She yeah. tried. Cake, yeah, she's cake. She yeah. And instead, we've got David Schwimmer in a mustache. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Abatha, what do we think yeah. of the stash? I can't tell if it's real or not. I don't think it's real. I think right? it's. I think it's real. I think it's I real. I thought so. it was fake. Oh, maybe. Well, you know, I'm not a good wig spotter, so add that to my list of things I can do. <laughs> I am not, a terrible not a good wig spotter. <laughs> fake mustache spotter. Oh my God. <laughs> Although I will say, your podcast has made me a better wig spotter. So thank you. That's hey. Joe. <laughs> That's Joe. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, okay, so on a rainy night, Todd takes notice of Arthur Denker, a.k.a. Kurt Dusander, who is played by Ian McKellen, as they ride the bus together. And of course, you know, I, I think this is very strategically well laid out. So we just got that visual montage. It's clear in Todd's mind. And then all of a sudden he's like, hey, that old man looks very familiar. And then we just flash forward a month. And because... then we flash forward a month. We do that a couple times in this movie. Yeah, and we it do. Never gets less awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one month later, Todd's friend Joey, played by Joshua <gasps> Jackson. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I messaged Joe. I was like, Joshua Jackson. <laughs> I feel like this is like a month before Urban Legend comes out, too. So, like, again, it's weird seeing him in this one. It's like, because Dawson's Creek is, like, happening right now, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He must have gone straight from the set to get those highlights in then for Urban Legend. (laughs) (laughs) I think he just has bleached hair in that movie. (laughs) I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Highlights is kind. Forget the highlights. There isn't time. Just bleach it. (laughs) Just throw some sun in on it. We're good. Oh, my God. Just lemon juice the shit out of me. I got to get to set. Oh, hey, it's still hot, though. Still hot. Yeah. He looks very baby-faced in this movie. Yes, he, he does. looks so young. Although, wait, I'm sorry. Did he also have bleached hair when he played that gay guy in Cruel Intentions? He did, yes. Okay, but that's before... <laughs> I'm like trying to put the timeline When were these here. movies made? <laughs> so I feel like he did Cruel Intentions, then did this, so he, go- he went back to normal, then he got bleached again for Urban Legend, unless for some reason Urban Legend was filmed before this. Maybe. Mm, but he looks younger maybe. in this than he does in Urban Legend. <laughs> He does. <laughs> Maybe they were like, that bleach is too whimsical for this movie. We've got to darken him up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a wig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a wig. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, it's, Maybe it's a wig, just like his other role. <laughs> uh, okay. So basically, Joey is trying to convince him, hey, you should come to this party. Hey, you should ask out Becky, who is played by Heather McComb. And Todd is just too darn busy because he's got Nazis on the mind. Mm. 
So he goes to Dusander's house and he more or less blackmails and barters his way inside. So he claims that he has the old man's fingerprints. He claims that he has photographs and he claims that he has a want sheet, a.k.a. an arrest warrant for this man and that he's got it all stored away in the event that something happens to him. So I love that this high school student right from the jump is anticipating this old man's going to try to kill him. So he's already fabricated this plan. So I will say, um, so again, this is the first time watch for me, as I said, I walked into this thinking this was like a rear window style movie where a teenager realizes he has a Nazi living next door to him. Oh, I no. I did not know this <laughs> was the plot mm-hmm. of this movie. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. And the story starts with him knocking on the door. So like we don't even get any montages. And I love like he is such a little piece of shit in this oh, he story. Sucks. You know? Oh, yeah. And he's just yeah. so fucking smarmy and you just want to punch mm-hmm. him. And I love it. And I think Brad Renfro does a fantastic job of really making you hate this character while he's got this big shit and grin, grin on his face and feeling sorry for Sir Ian McKellen too, even though he mm-hmm. is a terrible gross Nazi. Uh, well, yeah. uh, to the point where whenever he turns the tables on Todd, I was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, <you> Nazi. <laughs> Honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Privileged little yeah. white shit with a mullet is apparently comparable <laughs> to old man Nazi in this movie. I love how the movie, to me, that's the strength of this film yeah. and probably to the novella's credit as well. It's how it rearranges how we feel about people based on what we know of them and what is happening within their lives. And I don't think that this movie works if the Todd character is older or if the Dusander character is younger. Well, here's the thing, though. So, like, they shot this and Renfro would have been 14, maybe 15 when they were filming this. And Uh he looks so much older. And... Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I did it. Mean, I was kind of looking at some stuff because I, I knew he had died, but I couldn't remember when it happened. I even he died like literally months before he let her died. And it was a thing where everyone that talks about him was like, you thought he was about five years older than he actually was every time you were around him. And yeah, he, he you know, really? it's and you see that in this movie. Like, I, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. shit, 14. Like, he doesn't he looks 18. Yeah, he looks yeah. 17, 18. Well, and I think he has lived a life where he was treated like he was five or six years older, you know? And mm-hmm. if you dig, it's it's a really sad story, too. But, like, he lived a really tough life, too. But, yeah, I think... Exactly. And I think that, you know, I don't want to say that benefits him in this performance, but I think you can see that that harshness in his performance here, because like there's Mm -hmm. always like this seething anger underneath Todd's eyes that I think really works for this character. But I imagine that might have been something he was taking home with him or that's something he just lived with all the time. Given what I know about his life, I don't want to speculate. Yeah. But yeah, it's sad, but I think it works here, you know. I will say, I don't know if we'll ever cover this joke because it's not really horror, but it might. Um, I would highly recommend Larry Clark's 2001 film Bully. Oh, boy. It, it, it's This is what my husband made me watch because he grew up watching He grew up watching it. No. <laughs> no wonder Ari's in therapy. <laughs> he, well, he loves to like show me like really fucked up things and Bully was one of them. But like, but it's oh, it's really, really, really good. And Renfro was great in it. Right. That's one of his last like big film roles. Yeah. Oof. Um. So Todd is asking for entrance to DeSandra's house because what he's really looking for is he wants to hear stories, everything they're afraid to show us in school. Mm. And so that's what we get. That's where this movie starts to go. So we flash forward another month and he's 
at the point now where he's obsessed. He's drawing, he's doodling swastikas on his school books, and we hear in voiceover stories of things like the failed attempt to gas children in the concentration camps. I this honestly, so yeah, we, we hear about, you know, oh the, the prussic acid took fifteen minutes, the monoxide was an hour, but then there was one time where there was a leak and they didn't die, so after two hours, he sends men in with a rifle. And I was like, ooh, I think this was the hardest part for me personally to listen to. It's very rough. Yeah. And it's it's like that reading the book, too. I listened to the book. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. But like yeah. when he says, like, I don't want to lean into the Nazism, I feel like there's just as much of the Nazism in the book as there is in the film. You know, it's hard to really soften this. You know, mm-hmm. and I almost almost think the film would be like it would be doing what happened a mm. disservice to soften it. You know, like the well, point yeah. is that this kid is attracted to evil, and I get not wanting to sensationalize or exploit. Well, but the, okay, you know th- that's what I was going to bring up, though, right? Like, so how how do you tell a story like this without exploiting the tragedy? Because mm. part, the, the, your main character, his whole thing is that he is fascinated with the Holocaust, with the Nazis. And so, I mean, again, I, I don't particularly find this film exploitative, but, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. I kind of almost wish it leaned into that a little bit more. Well, because I think that there is a point to that exploitation, you yes. know? And I mean, yeah. I don't know if exploitation is quite the word, but the point of this story, I think, is that, like, some people are really attracted to this kind of darkness and to that mm-hmm. kind of exploitative story. And... That this is how evil transfers, you know, and that it is the grooming of a psychopath. And I think like it's a story that I think we need to be telling more because we are seeing it happen a lot Mm. more now than we were in 1998. Yeah, we just shifted it over to rape culture instead. Exactly. Yeah. But like, I feel like the the fear of being exploitative keeps us from telling these kinds of stories a lot of times, you know, and Mm -hmm. and again, you know. all the trigger warnings like if if this is something that will specifically upset you or re-traumatize you then i don't think it's like your duty to watch this or to listen but you know how are we gonna get what a little shit uh todd is if we don't hear the stories that he is obsessed with and he's like oh i want to hear the end of it and the nazi is disgusted you know and okay, so oh, 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 I don't even know if I want to like broach this topic, but it's like okay, so there's a whole scene in the novella where he fantasizes about raping this girl in like yep. a concentration camp, and yeah. that's obviously not in this film. And I'm not saying I want to see a sexual assault scene in this movie, but again, that's kind of a thing where it's like, but that would really cement this guy's evilness, like hardcore for me. And so mm. it's I mm. I disagree because uh, and. This is mostly just because it's the sexual assault component, mm-hmm. and it's only because we have seen way too many texts, particularly male-led texts, that lean into that to show, look at how horrible this mm-hmm. person is. I think we can do it differently and better. I think this movie makes a smarter choice by saying we don't need to include that because we can still sell how much this child is a bag of shit without having to veer into that kind of sensationalism. Okay. But also, I'm just like, I'm fucking sick of like female sexual assaults and rapes like mm-hmm. we've seen a bunch of them and guess what you're not doing them any differently well stay tuned yeah. for our uh, our well, programming next month <laughs> <laughs> well i mean unless she gets revenge <laughs> then i love it yeah. i mean i never love it but and it's an, an interesting 
I think what we get in the story in the book, and it is hard to read, and there's also this weird thing with the dildo, which is not anything mm. like any dildo I've ever heard of. Um, no. But it's... <laughs> um, How is but it a I dildo if you put your dick in it? Then That's it's exactly. Just... I was like, I don't think King knows what a dildo is when he wrote this. Tabitha! How do dildos work? Is he, is he talking about a flashlight? <laughs> More or less. Is that what a flashlight is? I'm sorry. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. It, it's a pocket <laughs> pussy or a pocket butthole, and you just put your dick in oh. it, and you fuck it. Yeah, that's essentially what he's doing, except it's he's mm-hmm. also sticking it into someone else. But I think what yeah. we get mm-hmm. in the scene in the book is his insecurity and his fear which I think makes him feel more pathetic. And I don't mm. want to see this, but there's also kind of a core of like wanting to subjugate others and to like humiliate people. And this core yes. of like, he can only be happy if he is like hurting other people. And I don't know mm-hmm. if we quite get that in the movie with the violence yeah. that we see from him, you know? I agree. I don't think we go there or we don't go there enough. And I said that about the sexual assault, but with regards to the cruelty to animals that we see in this film, I do think that that's where we're getting that. And it's all about power, right? It's about Todd trying to control. He is. He's so fucking angry in this movie. And you can tell he's Mm -hmm. trying to rebel in the most inhumane way he thinks possible because of what the Nazism offers him, right? Like, that's what he's attracted to. It's the darkness, Mm -hmm. but it's also the power. He wants to be important, and he wants to control other people. Jen, question. Mm -hmm. Do his parents have more of a presence in the novella? They do, yes. Although they are about as involved in his life in the novella as they are here. Um, but as you like, they start with a pretty good relationship and it's just kind of like they have their weird little Todd baby, mommy baby things. That's, that's mm-hmm. weird. But like as the novel per- or the novella progresses, like you'll get these scenes where he's talking to his mom and he's like, if she doesn't stop talking, I'm just going to punch her in the face. And like the violence well, starts to come out in his thoughts a lot more. Right. You know? I guess it's it's a thing I almost, again, I, I appreciate both the film and I guess in this case, the novella, that it's not like, a, oh, he had a bad home life and that's why he mm-hmm. is the way he is. Like right. by all accounts, like his dad is strict, I guess. Like that's kind of what we get from it. But Barely. like he has just a very like a quote unquote normal home life. So again, mm-hmm. evil can come from anywhere. The banality exactly. of evil. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I think makes this such a powerful character slash story. Right. Mm. So mentioning his family, we do have his mother, Monica, who is played by Anne Dowd. Dude, Baby I mean, Anne Dowd. <laughs> <laughs> a very young and and I mean like like younger than what we have today, obviously. But I was yeah. like, whoa. I yeah. it just I did not recognize her at first. <laughs> no. I did not recognize 25 years younger and out. I will say she looks very similar. She just looks a little younger. Yeah. yeah. Although I will say there was one spot where I, I, when Bruce Davison first shows up and I was like, is that Gary Oldman just with gray hair? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Bruce Davidson is playing Richard. Of course, uh, he will collaborate with Singer on a number of different projects. They also have a family friend, Victor, played by James Karen, who weirdly isn't much of a character and i have to wonder if there were deleted scenes or just additional storylines that didn't make this final cut but yeah i mean these are the adults that we see do sander woo when he comes over for dinner and of course that is cut a little bit short when all of a sudden victor starts asking hey what did you do during the war yeah (laughs) 
We get that a couple of times in this film because, of course, it's important to remember this is 84. I don't actually think the film goes very hard in its period aesthetic. You know, I made a a joke about the mullet, but obviously that was a fashion in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. But overall, it's like... I think sometimes I lose track of this film. It does feel much more like a 90s film than an 80s film. To well, me. but I also wonder if that's because of the 90s proximity to the 80s. I mean, like, look, this, mm. yeah, I, I, truthfully, if you would, if I didn't know already this movie took place in the 80s, I don't know if I would have been able to tell. But mm-hmm. I also kind of like that because how many times like, I, we just talked about this, Joe, like movies made today that are set in the 80s. It's like, right. it's the 80s with all mm-hmm. the 80s is things you can find. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, folks, we're talking about Totally Killer on the Patreon, and it's a great <laughs> film, but it's very much uh, crimped hair and leotards and other things like that. You know, this movie doesn't do that. Well, and I would argue it works better in that movie because that movie is like just an absurd comedy, whereas like, sure. I feel like Stranger Things ruined a lot of a yeah. lot of media for me because <laughs> everyone's taking cues from that, which is fine, but it's like, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it yeah. can just look quote unquote normal. <laughs> Yeah, it's more wood paneling than neon, you know, although I did have yeah. a front perm. <laughs> a lot of station wagons. Yes. Oh, yes, we have a station wagon. I did not know this was set in the 80s until you said it, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, 1984 I, is when it's meant to be set. a little bit of a, a double take. I was like, what? Yeah. Because I thought it was set in 98 or whenever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we did jump over one important scene, and this is going to bring us back to Singer because we do see that all of the stories are having an effect on Todd's dreams. So we don't really see, we, we see three significant dream sequences. This is the first one where he starts to see men from the concentration camps in blue set lighting. So in this case, he sees them through a kind of porthole. It's really hard to watch these scenes knowing Ryan Singer's allegations and his mm-hmm. history of targeting and preying on younger men. It's really uncomfortable to see Brad Renfro as a 14-year-old boy writhing in only boxers, yeah. sweaty from this nightmare. And you're just like, we are leering at this underage boy. Well, and I mean, I'm sorry, we're about to get to the scene in question, but like we see his butt in this movie. We did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This minor's butt. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, we, we see child nudity across a wide spectrum of different things. Like, I would argue we tend to see it more in comedies as a almost subject of mockery. Like, particularly in the 80s, men's bodies were kind of ha-ha things, unless it was Arnold Schwarzenegger and we were supposed to oogle those pecs and stuff. But yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, I... I don't have an issue with nudity on screen, but when we start to go into like, this is actual minors, and then you add in the Brian Singerness of it, this, like, this whole movie just plays so extremely differently from a contemporary lens. Yeah, which funny, though, because I don't think that was the same case in Hollywood at the time, because apparently the singer stuff was like an open secret. Oh, everybody knew about these fucking parties. So folks, if you didn't know, we, we kind of spoke about it off the top but basically he would just invite underage boys to parties and he would ply them with alcohol he would give them lots of drugs he had a whole grooming enterprise where friends of his would pass around and select boys that they thought were appropriate for him and his friends this article that we've linked to in the show notes it is in-depth and 
everybody knew. Yeah, and it's there is a part of the article where it's like because people the he, singer has friends that are like I like you know I never would have believed these accusations blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like it's a case where singer clearly has a lot of substance abuse problems, and he is like it's yes. like a Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde thing where he is one way when he is sober, mm-hmm. and then a complete pedophile when he's not, which is not an excuse, mm-hmm. mind you. But yeah. I just find that very interesting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends on which one you're spending time with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and every you know abuser has somebody that they didn't abuse too. That's like, oh, I never oh, yeah. would have believed that. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, as a person who's in recovery and has addiction issues, like, yeah, it doesn't excuse what you do, but I do think it puts it in context. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving forward. We see Todd laying out his research. We hear more of DeSanders' concentration camp story and voiceover and uh, that sort of banality of evil, but also this idea that the Nazis didn't always really care about what they were doing is really cemented when we finish with the line, it was just something that had to be done. That. Mm. I, I Okay. Did any of y'all... <sighs> maybe thing going in that the film was going to try to make Kurt a yeah like a sympathetic character Mm -hmm. I admit I thought we were going that route for a bit um to the point where I was kind of like oh this poor Nazi (laughs) yes I think that's partially how successful the film is applying the audience emotional triggers right like it I also I can't overemphasize how important it is that we have Ian McKellen yeah. in this role, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't want to think badly of this man. We've seen him as a concentration camp survivor in X-Men coming out just a couple of years later. Mm. So I think for a lot of people, there's a very strategic way of framing the Dusander character so that we think, oh, maybe he's not so bad. Look at him. He's a pathetic old sad man. And then you just wait a couple of scenes and you think, oh, no. This is a human monster. Yeah. Oh, also important to note, because we haven't said this, Brian Singer is Jewish as well. Right. Mm. Yes. Okay. So we get a game of shirts versus skins basketball that confirms that Todd should be a star athlete, but he's underperforming and he's also blowing off his friends. Not in that way. (laughs) Joey wonders where he's been. He's not seen him around a lot. So just a couple of months out, everything in Todd's life that doesn't involve DuSander is falling by the wayside. Yep. So this is when we get a uncomfortable shower sequence where we see Todd's school friends or people from the team who transform into emaciated, sick-looking old men from the concentration camp. And Trace... Tell us about the lawsuit. Okay. So, um, first of all, I will say, though, I actually do like how this stylistically looks. I love the the, yes. the, the shift in filter from, like, this to, from this bright, like, yellow to blue. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So, this scene was filmed at Elliott Middle School in uh, Altadena, California. Uh, and two weeks later, a 14-year-old extra filed a lawsuit alleging that Singer forced him and other extras to strip naked for the scene. Two boys, 16 and 17 years old, later supported the 14-year-old's claim. Uh, they claimed trauma from the experience, seeking charges against the filmmakers, including infliction of emotional distress, negligence, and invasion of privacy. 
allegations were made that the boys were filmed for sexual gratification. The uh, local mm-hmm. news and tabloid programs, you know, stirred controversy. Basically, though, they wound up filming the scene again with adult actors so the film could finish on time. However, this is when you, if you go back and look at that Atlantic article. Right. There's one account. And this is, I'm just going to read this verbatim. So this is a Victor Valdivino. Um, so he says his experience on the app people set was far more upsetting. Uh, so Singer had approached him in a bathroom uh, at the school and basically was like, wow, you look really good. I have a car, blah, blah, blah. Kind of like saying, come, like, come to school tomorrow and come to the movie set. I'm going to try to put you in this movie. Yeah, he was just a boy who attended this school, and then he was recruited slash groomed. So, after being dropped off by his father one morning, he was directed to the locker room. Shooting was about to begin. He remembers that the locker room had been divided, a screen here and lights over there. A crew member gave him a towel and told him to disrobe completely and wrap the towel around his waist. He was 13 years old. He hadn't yet had his first kiss. I'm hanging out, Valdivino says. All of a sudden, Brian comes in. He goes, hey, how are you? Real cheerful. And I'm like, hi. I can't remember his exact words, but he was kind of just saying, come back here. He kind of directs me. He kind of grabs me. And he takes us to the back area, which was kind of closed off. Like, this is the whole locker room. Valdivino's gestures to suggest the space. They're doing their stuff over there. And I was back here in the towel with no shirt and no clothes on. Bear in mind, he's 13 or 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian's like, just hang out here. It's going to be all day. Don't worry. Uh, Singer left and Valdivino's waited for what seemed like hours. Eventually, he says, Singer came back and made small talk. How are you doing? Do you need anything? Every time he had a chance, three times, he would go back there. He was always touching my chest. Finally, according to Valdivinos, Singer reached through the towel flaps and, quote, grabbed my genitals and started masturbating it. The director also rubbed his front part on me, Valdivinos alleges. He did it all with this smile. He also says that Singer told him, you're so good looking. I really want to work with you. I have a nice Ferrari. I'm going to take care of you. Ugh. Yes. Um, that was difficult to read initially, and that was even more difficult to read out loud. So this this came out in 2019 in this big expose on the Atlantic. So it wasn't just this lawsuit that happened with mm-hmm. like with the nudity. It was also this. But of course, I don't think a lawsuit actually ever came from this. This was just in the reporting. Yeah, because unfortunately, one of the things that you discover when you dig into the people who have made the allegations is that they're almost all either like runaways or people who don't have a lot of connections or they themselves have fallen into well, drug addiction, uh, unhoused situations and so on. So they become really easy to discredit if you mm-hmm. are Brian Singer and you have $3 billion worth of movie profits to lawyer up with. Also really easy to target too. Well, and that. Th- that's the one thing that this article kind of comes around to where it's like the issue here is that you're exploiting the actual effects of trauma like you know trauma mm-hmm. will, can possibly lead you to drug addiction to alcohol addiction and make you again less of a reliable witness when these mm-hmm. things are brought in front of a court yeah mm-hmm. because the one the one case that actually did go to court and then it got dismissed and everybody said oh i guess brian singer is vindicated and here's the thing folks i'm not going to pretend that people don't unfortunately get accused of sexual assault incorrectly sometimes but like when you look at this as i said earlier this is a fucking pattern of behavior like when you Mm -hmm. look at it it's impossible to deny that this many people were involved or that this many people weren't harmed but it's really easy when somebody says oh i thought i was here and it turns out it wasn't actually there and then their whole case gets discredited and 
like well that doesn't mean that they weren't sexually assaulted well there's a bit too where they talk about one of the one of the survivors going to like a support group and someone else in the group was like oh you're one of singers boys i was too Mm -hmm. like they had a name for themselves yeah jeez yeah, and I mean, the way that trauma works, too, is that you don't remember every detail clearly because your brain can't. And so it's when trying you... to protect you. Yeah, exactly. And so reporting just a tiny difference wrong, like, oh, maybe he only waited for two hours instead of four hours. Oh, well, suddenly you're lying, you know. And I exactly. also think especially for a boy or a male identifying person to re- to report something like this like there's so much more to lose if you report it than there is to gain like there's mm-hmm. no reason for somebody to make this kind of thing up and you know and ale- again allegedly he has not been convicted of anything but yep. i just i don't know believe survivors well, and I, I want to read one more thing because this does involve Renfro. And Joe, this is what you sent me earlier today. But there was a, a party that this boy, um, we're going to call him Andy, who was 15, went to. And basically it says, he went to a house and Brian Singer directed him upstairs uh, to the first room on the right top of the stairs. Inside was a waterbed. Uh, he said he and Singer had talked about what grade he was in. Brian knew I was 15. Singer would have been about 31. As Andy tells it, he and Singer weren't alone in the bedroom. Singer had brought along Brad Renfro, the star of Apt Pupil, who was now 15. According to two sources, Singer sometimes referred to Renfro as his boyfriend. (sighs) Renfro sat sheepishly next to the waterbed, looking unsure of what to do while Singer and Andy fooled around. Clothes came off, but Renfro didn't move. Quote, I remember wanting Brad to join in, Andy says. I don't think Brad was gay or even bi. I think he was going with the flow. We talked about it. Like me, he looked around at all the things these guys had, all the money. Maybe he thought the guys were going to do things for him. Mm-hmm. And that is that. Um, he eventually did leave the room. But again, it's just like, blah. Yeah. Oh, well, and I wrote something about Brevin for a while ago, and I have not looked into this recently, so I'm not specific on the details but this is like a pattern of behavior in brad renfo's life too is adults Mm -hmm. exploiting him using him putting him in in positions like this and he is coming from you know he came from really really poor family in knoxville and there are some nice parts of knoxville but it's not like a big metropolis you know and so money and fame would have been really appealing to a 15 year old boy Mm -hmm. who is coming from an abusive home you know and yeah yeah. Oh, it just there's so much so many levels of ick in this yeah like, yeah such young boys well and that's the thing i mean not that i was hunting out like brian singer or brad renfro stuff but i was like well if all this yeah. is going on in this movie like what was happening between singer and renfro exactly if, if anything yeah. and that's the that that paragraph was where i was like oh and again it's Fuck. a thing where it's like singer referred to him as his boyfriend like mm-hmm. okay he's a 14 year old kid yeah, <laughs> on your you- movie set <laughs> Even if that's a a flippant joke or something, the power dynamic is massive Uh there. Yeah, Like you're talking about, oh, I'm the star of your movie, but you could fucking fire me. And maybe this is my biggest shot at stardom because Mm -hmm. this is the director who's literally coming off of the usual suspects, which wins Oscars. Yep. Mm -hmm. And and to be clear, his next movie is (laughs) X-Men. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is the flop in between. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's let's settle back into the film. Yes. <laughs> let's talk about one of the, I think, most successful sequences in this movie, which really establishes the power dynamic and how it shifts between Todd and Dusander. And that's when Todd gifts a Nazi uniform to Dusander for Christmas 
and then forces him to wear it and march. He's such a shit in this scene. And it's so, <laughs> it's so cold. Like there's like, because I want to see you in it. There's It's so mm-hmm. icky and gross. And I love like how evil he feels in this moment you know and i agree i think this is kind of a pivotal moment when dusander starts to kind of re i don't want to say reclaim some of his power but reclaim mm-hmm. like some of this evil that's lying with or, or remember that he used to be a little shit too you know um right. but i really like the way these two characters dance back and forth and how neither of them ever feel like good people even though they may Mm-mm. occasionally feel sympathetic because i think that's that's ultimately what this movie is saying is that evil transfers and it doesn't always look the same but the right. intent is the same you know but i i do agree though i think this is uh, to be honest i think this is my favorite sequence in the film because i do think it's the mm-hmm. most effective and again it's challenging my beliefs because mm-hmm. this is the scene where i was like oh my god this poor nazi like whole right because in my mind i'm like okay he clearly Clearly, he must regret what he does. He's he, what he has done. He's living with this incredible guilt. The and shame. Now, yeah. He, yeah. Here's this kid. Who, and I wrote my notes. This kid sucks in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Todd gets to go. I mean, it's a great moment for Renfro because he says, I tried to do this the nice way, but you don't want to do it. So fine. We'll do this the hard way. Yes. You will put this on because I want to see you in it. Now move. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. <sighs> But, I mean, it's also really difficult not to read a sexual dynamic in this, right? Which I think Mm -hmm. is extra complicated knowing what's happening outside of the actual film proper, right? Right. But it is fascinating to see a younger man asserting this kind of authority on an older man in this relationship where he's effectively playing dress up with him. Well, it's almost like a dom-sub relationship. It is. There's a lot of sadomasochistic implications in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I think is really interesting because I think if Todd just happened to live next door to this guy and he mm-hmm. happened to just be in his house and all of a sudden they started talking, like, I think you could really look at Todd as a victim here. And I'm not saying he is not a victim, but he is just as complicit in this relationship that they form. He's the one that forces it. And if not for him, it wouldn't exist at all. So I don't think there's any way that he is, he is, I don't know, innocent in this. But one thing, Trace, you said something about Dusander living with guilt. And I'm curious about mm-hmm. that because, and this could be me just coming off of the book, but I yeah. don't really read guilt from him. I think I kind of no. get a, just leave me alone. You know, I want to stay mm. in hiding, you know? It, it, it might be my preconceived notions about Ian McKellen as an actor, mm. but there's right. there's a part, it's almost, it's almost like he starts crying in one of the earlier scenes when he's telling something. But again, this could all be an act to get this kid out of his fucking house. Uh, But don't forget that this scene also opens with Dusander passed out drunk at the table. Todd has Mm. to wake him up to give him this gift. And so I'll confess, I do read it the same way as you, Trace, where he is trying to drink himself under the table to forget what he has done. He isn't engaging with the larger world outside of the house. Like he's isolating himself because he can't live with what he's done. But these are all things that we are projecting onto the film. Yes. And, and to, to go further, Jen, it's also a thing where it's like, eventually it is revealed that, because no, to me, I view this as, oh no, his evil has always been there. He is evil. It's just been dormant. And it's mm-hmm. when, it's mm-hmm. when the, the this kid like gets a rise out of him again to where he's like, oh, 
I can be powerful again. I can be powerful again. I can have control over – and he'll verbalize this later in the film. So it's kind of like a thing where I I feel not like the fool, but where I'm like, oh, god damn it. Like, this is how he does it. Nazi is as Nazi does. (laughs) God. Yeah. Well, but I think that's important. It's because, like, even the worst people can play in our sympathies, you know? Yes. 100%. Some of the best psychopaths know how to play the game, and they know how to make Mm -hmm. us feel like they're just a sweet little old man or, like, all-American boy who would never get into any trouble. And I think that's part of what I really think is powerful about this story is that we see behind the curtain of all of that when they're two together and they see what each Mm -hmm. other are, you know? Well, and I'm, like, a big fan of just really, like, honest, like, uncomfortable conversations. And you don't Mm – you can't really get much more uncomfortable than a – Nazi explaining to a teenager what he felt while sending people into the gas chamber. Uh-huh. Yeah. I do also want to give credit back to John Ottman, who edited this part and the rest of the film, as you said, Trace. But the the cutting back and forth between Renfer's face and McKellen's marching and the ordering, and we speed up as we go until the point when it becomes uncomfortable because you can see DeSander get into it and he's taking ownership of the action. And then he's given that Nazi salute, and oh boy, it is just, it's a lot. Like this sequence is really powerful, and I think the mm-hmm. editing does have a lot to do with that. Um, I do want to point out too. So yes, we've mentioned John Altman, you know, being editor and composer. John Altman is primarily known as a composer, with the exception, of course, that one directing gig for uh, Urban Legends Final Cut. He is only an editor on Brian Singer films. Weird. He has edited. Uh, shit, you not. Usual Suspects, most of the X Men films, Superman Returns, Valkyrie, Jack the Giant Slayer, and Bohemian Rhapsody. But he's edited, oh, like, nothing else. Like, he just edits Brian Singer films. Hmm. Re- read into that what you want. I yeah. was going to say. So they're <laughs> clearly friends. We might have discussed this, actually, on Urban Legends Final Cut, but... <laughs> I think we mentioned it, yeah. Yeah. We just refer to it as the Brian Singerness of it all. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then we cross-cut between two different scenes. So we have a scene with Becky and Todd in the car where he is trying to verbalize some of his i want to say confusion or it could just be you know what let's talk about evil so he asks her (laughs) does she ever think about why people do what they do and she's just like "Ugh, teenage boys so she tries (laughs) to give him head and he cannot perform again we don't get a lot of explicit queerness in this film but she does make a joke saying maybe you don't even like girls (laughs) Mm mm-hmm once again, let's uh, put it out there on the record. Erectile dysfunction happens to most men at different points in their life. So this is not an uncommon issue. It's a very cruel thing for a teenage girl to say. But in the space of this film, I think we are meant to look at it and say, oh, he's not going to get off from something as conventional as just a regular human sexual interaction with a high school girl. Yeah, it's too vanilla. He, ne- he needs yeah. that uh, th- those concentration camps. Yeah, or he needs to kill a pigeon or something. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I, I don't want to be that person. Well, in the book, over and over again. No, but no, I no go ahead, go like, ahead. In the well, in the book, um, book. there, like, he specifically has to think about the girl that he had the dream about that where he was assaulting her. That's how he's able to get himself up. And he also talks about a string of girlfriends where it, like, he's fine to fuck them a couple of times or to kind of be handsy and then back off when they give their, like, oh, they, they, when they demure, you know, but it's Mm -hmm. very clear that he is not actually interested in these these relationships and i think that's really interesting and i think 
if this were a, I don't know, but not so much of a piece of shit little kid, you know, I would be mm-hmm. interested in this, this 15 year old kid realizing I cannot get sexually excited unless I am thinking about harming someone. Because I think that's right. a turn. It could be a turning point where he thinks something's wrong. And I think part mm-hmm. of what the film is showing is that when you have a kid who is this age, who is having these thoughts mm-hmm. and they talk to the wrong people or they are around the wrong people, how horribly wrong it can go, you know? Well, mm-hmm. and again, like how much of her, okay, watching this, cause I, I, I don't know if I want to, but I kind of want to make a parallel to a statutory rape situation where it's like, how much mm-hmm. of a responsibility does Todd have in this, in this relationship versus what Kurt has? Because I, I feel like a lot of what happens, uh, especially with people who are caught with, uh, in, in flagrante with, with minors, they're always like, oh, the kid led me on. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. The adult ha- is the responsible factor here. It doesn't matter if a kid yeah. was, quote unquote, trying to seduce you. You're still the fucking adult. You're still the one with the power. It doesn't matter. This isn't fucking Lolita. Yeah. Well, exactly. imagine, though, yeah. you could argue, well, hey, like, you know, he's got this. Uh, he's going to send Kurt to prison. But it's like, yeah, but like, man. And go to fucking prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he's too busy in the other cross-cutting scene. And folks, extreme content warning. Yeah. Mm. Dusander, cool. after putting on that outfit, getting his mojo back, decides, you know what? I need to put this stray cat into my oven. Which... Look, I-, I am definitely one of those people that's like, ooh, like, I show me a kid dying, show me a kid getting skinned mm-hmm. alive, I don't give a fuck. Animals are hard, I know some people, like, <laughs> bitch about that, but, like... Show me a kid getting this... skinned alive, Jesus. Like, seriously, oh, like, absolutely. Show me a dead kid <laughs> no, no. any day of the week. I... <laughs> could barely get through this scene i was so upset but, and so the fact that the cat gets away i was no, so happy trace, about the cat does not get away in the book the cat does not Ooh. it doesn't die in the oven though it doesn't die in the oven this time no we see a poster later for the missing cat and it's pretty obvious that that cat is dead his little comment about oops i burned my tv dinner oh uh, yeah. okay but that is a little funny though <laughs> 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 but in the book, we get the play-by-play of this happening, and it is Ooh. it is so upsetting. Like, mm. yeah. so I am glad the cat at least gets away when I can see it. You know, well, exactly. yeah, exactly. I don't have to see this cat because I mean, this is where <laughs> I think you even see the cat's like paw touch the flames on the top of this Ooh. oven, and it's I was just so like, oh my god, like, ugh. I don't even know how they filmed this. And then if you read about it, apparently this cat was heavily sedated and barely moving, and there was absolutely no danger they didn't hurt this cat. But the way it is shot, yeah. is so effective. Yeah, mm-hmm. th- this is this is the most uncomfortable part of the movie for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I thought that it was going to be the book. I thought that cat was going to die. So I was like, no, poor little kitty. <laughs> and I'm a new cat owner, too. So, oh, Oof, I know. God. It's like, if he put my cats in the oven, I would kill him. Sorry. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but it is effective, too. And I think it is an important mm-hmm. scene in case we were feeling too sorry for him. You know? 100%. Yes. Yeah, it's important that these scenes happen so close together, right? Because mm-hmm. just in case you thought, oh, Todd's the really bad one, DuSanter's not that bad. Oh, no. No, they're they're both actively terrible. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so speaking of Todd, he learns that his grades have slipped to the point where his college admission is going to be in trouble. And also, he just doesn't have answers for any of Joey's questions. Like, clearly his life is falling apart outside of all of this. 
just wanted to highlight the fact that a lot of the interactions between both Todd and Joey, as well as Todd and Dusander, are shot in very extreme close-ups. So we are seeing a lot of lips, and a lot of this feels sexy. Mm. (laughs) So this is when Todd kills a pigeon. So we've got back-to-back animal cruelty happening. I wanted to ask you two if you had any thoughts about the way that this is shot, because it happens in front of an open door in the gymnasium, and the world outside is completely white and obscured, to the point where I wondered if people had ever looked at this and thought, oh, this is a dream sequence. Todd is just Mm. imagining this. I don't know if I read it as a dream sequence, although I don't think I would disagree with you on that. I think... I would tend to fall more into, oh, he is so consumed with fascination at having the ability to kill that he does is not even considering who is watching, you know? But I could see it as a dream sequence. Okay. For the record, I, I don't personally see it as a dream sequence, though. I just wonder if people do. I wonder, like, because maybe not so much a dream sequence, but like lifting the basketball up and just not slamming it down, you know, or slamming it right next because we actually don't see the bird die you know no 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 no. i just got the caption that says flapping stopped i was expecting to see like a smattering of blood though on this basketball right Mm, yeah mm -hmm. and we don't no no (laughs) okay so after learning that his grades are bad todd (laughs) goes to dusander and tries to suggest that it's his fault and he even threatens dusander by saying they're gonna want to know exactly what happened and what happened was you. <laughs> this kid. Such a little I hate bitch, this kid man. so much. I know. He needs to get punched in the face real bad. Uh-huh. <sighs> well, it does land him in a different kind of hot water situation because he has to meet with guidance counselor Edward French, played by David Schwimmer with a wig over his lip. And <laughs> no, this... there, has to, there has to be a name for that, though. Like, you know how like, like a pubic wig is a merkin? Like, what's the name mm. for a mustache wig? A whip? Oh, hmm. I was... A, a mig. <laughs> mig, yeah. A mig. My lip. I don't know. We'll, we'll work Oh my god, it. except now I'm just imagining a spinoff of Jason Statham's franchise. It's The Mig, only it's David Schwimmer's mustache terrorizing people in the ocean. I would watch that. <laughs> Terrible, terrible. Uh, Unexpectedly, at this meeting with the guidance counselor is Dusander, who is playing his grandfather, Victor. Ha ha. That's why we had Victor at the family dinner earlier. Uh. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason he's in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. I think so. And and even I only just now understood that because I think I called him a friend of a family earlier. It's his grandfather. That was his grandfather. I didn't Um, get it either, yeah. I loved this like watching it i was like ah he's got you now you little shit <laughs> it's so true mm-hmm. i'm rooting for the nazi <laughs> the worst the worst <sighs> yeah there's an element of this that could be really boring you know like oh it's uh-huh. the grades drama but i do love like the, the fact well, that i want this kid to get in trouble yeah and I, I i think this is when the movie really picks up for me and i mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really maintain this momentum after this i don't think mm-hmm. um no, because it feels like we're exchanging tete-a-tetes, right? Like it's blow yes. after blow, and then at a certain point, it just ends. Yeah, like it, it, it plateaus. <laughs> Let's say that. Right. 
So the deal that Mr. French offers him is that he needs to get A's on all of his finals, and then they'll waive the midterm. So basically, he gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. And uh, Jen, would you like to join me on climbing onto the soapbox to talk about white, middle-class to upper-class patriarchy? Because if Todd was any fucking one else, he wouldn't get this kind of do-over offer. <laughs> but Joe, he has his whole life ahead of him, and we can't ruin his potential. Boy. He deserves he a second is. chance. Fuck exactly. this child. <laughs> oh, uh, Joe, I will always join you on a soapbox about the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, this is when Dusander leaves them alone, and he does touch Todd's shoulder, and it's meant to be this moment of, ha ha, fucker, I've got you now, but it could also just be seen as an endearing grandfather touching his grandson, saying, you got this, boy. I love the multiplicity of meanings. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is also when Mr. French gives Todd his home phone number for anything at all. And this is why I always used to tell mm. faculty members at university, do not ever give your private number to any of your students for any fucking reason, because they will do stuff like this, hopefully not sexually blackmail you by making it seem like you're a pedophile. But, you know, maybe. Yeah. Also, they might call you. <laughs> And then you have well, to talk there to is them. That too. <laughs> but yeah, that is a big, big, big no no. Never give your personal phone number away, especially to Mm-mm. a student. No. No. So Todd is not pleased that Dusander put him in this position. He tries oh, to yell at him. because he's got to work now. Poor Todd. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> okay, here's, the thing. here's the thing, though. Because he, he was working before. He was an, a grade A student who was yeah, amazing at it. sports. It's just mm-hmm. that he got so caught up in the, in the Holocaust of it all. <laughs> yeah. But now he's discovered evil and he doesn't have time for his studies anymore. Evil ate my homework. <laughs> He's too he's too busy literally doing crime and looking into crime <laughs> than doing the work. Uh, yeah, I'm actually surprised. Um, I guess well, maybe I maybe I'm not surprised because he's a minor, but like I'm surprised there's not a scene of him like masturbating, like getting sexual pleasure from one of these like dreams, hallucinations he has of the concentration camps. I mean, in the book, he doesn't wake up sweaty uh, after that. He wakes dream. up cum covered. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, for the uh, first time. So yeah, which. Again, given what's going on outside of the narrative mm-hmm. of this film, I'm glad that we're not seeing. But yes, had this been done by someone else, yeah, I think this is where you could have gone harder. And that that is yeah. the implication, though, of the scene where he can't get hard with his girlfriend. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. he only gets hard from, like, Nazi yeah. stories now. From pain, yeah. yeah. I am also sad that there's no microfiche in this movie because we've had right. some studying well, and some research. And it's 84. Microfiche. Prime microfiche territory. Exactly. That was the heyday. That would have been the opening credits, but we just get actual newspaper clippings in the opening mm-hmm. credits. You know what? Don't tease me with newspaper. I want that goddamn microfiche. <laughs> exactly. We get so few opportunities these days. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So this is when Dusander flips the script, quite literally, and says, okay, now I'm in charge and you're going to do all of your homework. We're not doing this anymore. I'm in control. And I especially like when he says, uh, you've basically known me for half a year and you've never said anything. So at this point, your plausible deniability is gone. And think about how much this would hurt the reputation of not just you, but also your parents. Yeah. And this is a good line, too, where he's like, 
like, you know, do you know what it feels like to have someone in your control, to have them know that they are alive only because you have not decided the contrary? That, that's the thesis for this film right here. Mm-hmm. Right. But again, like, did y'all get the sexual implications from like, go fuck, I think you should go fuck yourself. Oh, mm-hmm. my boy, don't you see? We are fucking each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the big thing that we change in this narrative. And I, you know, if we weren't talking about how terrible fucking Brian Singer was, and if he was just a queer director, we'd be able to say, oh, isn't it interesting how he took out the misogyny from the novella and moved it into this like uncomfortable homoerotic dance in the film because I Mm -hmm. do think that that's really fascinating but instead it has all these loaded fucking implications now because it makes it too real right like we're out of the world of the film and we are in the real world dealing with these issues and that's what makes it and again I I find that fascinating if not if it's not enjoyable (laughs) no but but, but I find it fascinating to watch to think about to discuss even though yeah we are dealing and discussing some very upsetting things here well and i think the other thing that i really love about this moment in the film is it kind of shows i think this is the first time that todd really understands the consequences of what he's done and maybe the first time he's really been confronted with consequences that he can't fake his way out of you know because he's like I think he's looking at Dusander as this old guy who's falling asleep drunk on his table. But like, this is when Dusander, at least in the book, and I bring this to the the movie, is like, now I've. Do you know how many people I've killed? Do you know how mm-hmm. many people I've lied to? Do you know how many people I've manipulated? Like, I've been doing this since before your parents were even born, and you think you can come yeah. here and fuck with me? You know? Yeah. I mean, he he says, you know. Can you lie convincingly to judges and reporters? Because I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I've been doing, doing it for how many long? How long? Yeah. 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 And it feels really good for that little shit kid to get. Yes. To, like, get that grin wiped <laughs> off his face, you know? Well, because like, he was like, he just walks in thinking, yeah, I can blackmail this Nazi. No problem. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep, and that's a kid who's always gotten everything he's wanted. Is it ever? Because I know in the in the novella, both of them are bluffing. So we know that Kurt doesn't have this this paper in the safety deposit box, but mm-hmm. but in the novella, Todd also has nothing. Yeah. yeah. So did that, did, is that in the movie? Because I'd miss that if that's the case. Todd does have all of the stuff he talks about. When he burns it in the tunnel ah, later, okay. that's what he's doing. So he had all of it. What he has not done is uh, told anybody else. And that's what yes. he is bluffing mm. on. He has not given a letter to a friend the way Dusander says he's got a letter got in the deposit box or something. Yeah, But yeah, he does have the proof. Got it. Okay. So speaking of sexual gratification, we should note that there is a cleverly framed moment where Dusander dresses in the uniform at night, looks at himself, and touches himself. It just so happens to also be the moment that we're going to introduce a new character, an unhoused individual named Archie, played by Elias <laughs> Codius. And he's him. going through the trash and just happens to see this going on. Which um, sucks for him. Whoops. Yep, it sure does. <laughs> but I love seeing Elias Cotis pop up. I had the biggest crush on him mm-hmm. as Casey Jones in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, I was... so anytime I see him, I'm like, yes! <laughs> ah, yes, that's your frame of reference. Mine is Crash. <laughs> see, I, oh. no, I think I think my husband also was like, because uh, I, I I didn't know who Casey Jones was, but I think they in those new movies they cast Stephen Amell as a uh, as him, and he was like, Ugh, mm. he's no Elias Codius. <laughs> right. Oh, very true. <laughs> 
Okay, so we get a montage of Todd studying, but he is being distracted by all of the previous conversations. So, you know, he's he's working through some things as he's trying to get his A's to the extent that he crashes his bike in a tunnel right in front of a Nazi symbol <laughs> as he hears Dusander's voice say, it never goes away. <laughs> this felt a little heavy handed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is covering, I think, or this is, um, I don't know, covering maybe is the word for a long string of Todd kind of in incrementally falling apart. So I think this is one scene that does feel a little bit on the nose to tell us Todd's not doing well, you know? Right. Yeah. This is where it's finally catching up with him. It's yeah. too much for him to process. So he does end up throwing away all of his evidence. And I love this transition. So we hear Dusandra laughing as he does this. But then in the transition over to the house, it's revealed that he's laughing because he sees that Todd did get all of those A's on his report card. So they're out of the woods. Yay! Hooray! <laughs> Poor little white boy. <laughs> I know. Couldn't happen to a nicer kid, you know? <laughs> okay, well, let me ask. Do you think there's any way that Todd turns his life around at this point? No. No, yeah. The, I think the evil's taken root. I think he'll just find socially acceptable ways to express it. Or <laughs> hide it and present in a socially fashionable way. And ideally eventually get caught and jailed. Yeah. Or shoot people from an overpass. Well, and the reason I ask, and again, I hate to say well in the book, but this is when he starts killing on his own in the book. And I feel like in, well, I mean, around these parts, and I feel like that is introduced to his character differently, which I think maybe taints his character just a little bit or paints it in a different light, you know? Okay, so because that's honestly my big thing. Like the fact that there's only one murder that that, that Todd gets roped into and Mm -hmm. almost black. So it's not even his conscious decision to murder this guy. Right. Right. I do feel like that robs something from 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 the story. Yes, I could see it. I could see the film going harder. But I do feel like the one murder we get is really effective. Yeah, but it's still not his choice to do it. Like we have this kid that's going, I mean, however many people he kills in the novella, like doing it for for the lulls, essentially. (laughs) Well, and to relieve the pressure that is building up with this knowledge of all of these heinous things. And I I think the thing that I'm missing in the film, and I agree, I think the murder is very effective. um, And I don't necessarily want more. I think I just... I I could pity Todd at this point because he has destroyed yeah. this evidence. He has tried to be quits with Dusander and he mm-hmm. gets pulled back into it against right. his will. And I don't think that that excuses anything he's done or anything he's going to do. And I don't think he ultimately would have turned around and been Mr. Nice Guy, you know, but it just complicates it a little bit, you know? Yeah, right. I think this makes it slightly easier to get back on Todd's side. I love that there's this moment where they do turn on each other. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, Todd contemplates pushing Dusander down the stairs and Dusander reveals he's actually holding a knife. And this is when he reveals, oh, I've got my own document in a safe place that'll go up if anything happens. And yeah, their relationship falls apart. And you think maybe Todd's going to just walk away from all this and it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And instead, of course, yeah, poor Archie gets drawn back into this. So we should note that Archie (laughs) Archie. is unabashedly a queer character in this movie. So uh, he not only more or less invites himself back to Dusander's house after he catches his eye on the bus, but 
you have to assume from the costuming, he's either wearing a woman's shirt that's very glittery and he's got a scarf, or he is an effeminate man or he, he enjoys dressing more flamboyantly. But he barely obviously says, you know, I've done this before, i.e. sex work. He'll sleep with Dusander if he can take a shower and get 10 to $20 in the morning. But, uh, yeah... Dusander himself decides, oh, I need a release. So instead of engaging in sex, he engages in murder play. So he stabs Archie in the back. Yeah, I just like yeah, him massaging his head, though, is still like. It's so creepy. It's but mm-hmm. again, it's kind of like, is he going to fuck this guy? A hundred percent. I thought, you know what? In a different movie, they would have fucked and then Dusander would have killed him. Yeah. 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 If it had come out today. Well, and it's interesting the way you phrase it as he needs a release too, you know, because that mm-hmm. it's yeah. And he's escalating from cats well, to people. But actually, I mean, look, because again, we're not dealing with with queerness explicitly in this film, but I mean... But by virtue of casting Ian McKellen, how do you read this scene differently? Well, and again, based on... Because the pie chart that opens this film, you know, it's like these are the, the people that the Nazis were targeting, with obviously yeah. the biggest chunk being for um for, for Jews, but, but there's a little sliver <laughs> for mm-hmm. homosexuals on that pie chart. Mm-hmm. Let's break out those pink triangles, baby. And I, I'm fascinated by the fact that we don't get any, I, any mention of... of of the queer community from mm-hmm. Dusander. Uh, we, we do get a bit whenever he brings Todd over and he's like, well, if you're going to behave like a schoolgirl, like that's the closest yes. kind of like emasculating uh, 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 phrasing that we get from this character in this movie. But again, a part of me kind of want, wishes the movie would delve into that too. Yeah, I couldn't help if the casting of McKellen was meant to do some of that heavy lifting, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a queer director who casts one of the few very notable bankable queer actors working today and in some ways you could think of it as an ironic casting choice right like oh the person who would be most likely to be killed by the nazis is going to play one but then you factor in all of the homoerotic queer undertones in this film and i think it just makes it extra fascinating and complicated yeah Mm -hmm. okay so dusander wants to finish this job but he has a heart attack and has to call todd in to finish the job (laughs) and yeah this is basically where he locks todd in the cellar with this guy archie comes back alive briefly and todd has to finish him off i always appreciate it when a murder scene in a movie is particularly messy like this one like Mm -hmm. not everyone's just good at killing people you know (laughs) this isn't dexter no (laughs) right yeah and this is upsetting too like you really i mean i already i came in liking elias elias cotis a lot um Mm -hmm. but you really feel for this character and it's such a terrible way to go out like i'm sure he doesn't think he's getting away when he's down in the basement but Mm -hmm. to have like the the person who's killing you have a heart attack i just i can't imagine what that death was like for that character you know well and then you have this 17 year old kid who's finishing the job and it's like jesus christ man Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. With a shovel, right? With a shovel. But it's so stylish. Like yeah. when when we accidentally hit the light bulb and all of a sudden it goes from very clearly illuminated to almost a red haze filter, which is very symbolic of the murder that we're committing because we're covered in fucking blood because killing mm-hmm. someone with a shovel is messy business. Oof. I thought it was very, very stylish. And it also reminded me a little bit, Trace, of... 
Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, also, y'all, go listen to an episode on that because that is a hidden queer gem. Oof, that is a messy fucked up movie. But it's also about, you know, the uncomfortable relationship between an adult and a minor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now Todd and Dusander are on even ground because Todd has officially been implicated in a murder, but Dusander is also dying and Todd does not care. Yeah, and I, you know, you get the impression that he's going to let Dusander die. And this mm-hmm. is not how it plays out in the book. And I was like... Are they gonna? Is he gonna watch while he dies? Is this gonna be? Is and it made me think of um, sleeping with the enemy. Like I've just killed an uh, intruder. Okay. It's like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> no, but then he does. He changes his mind, and that felt odd to me. I wondered why. Yeah, I guess he just chickened out. Well, I yeah. think he he decides that he can't take the risk that Dusander was lying mm. because mm. if anything oh, does come right, out. Yeah. But uh, he ends up, yeah, cleaning up this entire house. He buries the body. He burns the Nazi outfit back in the tunnel because we love to burn things in that fucking tunnel. <laughs> this is where we get to see the sad poster for Missing Cat Timmy. Okay, so, I do have this in my notes. Oh, a lost cat poster. <laughs> <laughs> the cat. I guess yeah, I was just like, oh, I guess a bunch of cats just go missing in this town. <laughs> well hey why that's do people keep missing their animals i was gonna say yeah. Yeah. yes <laughs> a very kingism yeah mm-hmm. tabitha although what do well I have before animals? that <laughs> <laughs> okay so todd goes to the hospital to try to figure out where those 12 fucking blackmail pages are and this is when he learns no nope. it was all a lie <laughs> it was all a ruse mm-hmm. <laughs> which and i what a I goose it's interesting I wonder how much the other two believed that they like, I wonder how much they saw through these bluffs, because part of Mm -hmm. me thinks they are just enmeshed in this relationship. And they are as much as they hate it, they're also getting off on it. And they want to believe this blackmail, you know? It's that push and pull of the S and M relationship, right? They well, enjoy right. fucking each other over. I especially mm-hmm. believe it for Kurt because I think again, I, I think once he, after he puts in that uniform, after he tries to kill this cat and eventually succeeds, I think mm-hmm. he's kind of like, I, it's like that thing where it's like, um, the the danger of getting caught is like yes. is exciting to you sometimes sexually uh-huh. in a way. I feel like at this point he's like, I've got my mojo back and mm-hmm. I don't care, man. Let, take me to the edge. I mean, we get the Icarus flying cl- so close to the sun metaphor. Oh. no (laughs) just spelling out (laughs) he doesn't have anything else to do too he's like falling asleep on his table drinking like at least todd has like baseball you know yeah (laughs) baseball (laughs) we've confirmed this todd has his whole life ahead of him oh that's right he does special boy (laughs) (laughs) hashtag special boy I do also love this moment in the hospital between the two of them where Dusander asks him in a whisper, what was it like? Just like, Mm. tell me, tell me how it feels when you murder, because I want to know if it feels like how I feel when I murder. Also, you are me now, you know? Yeah, basically. You you have no more moral high ground, you know? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So Todd leaves, but his affection, quote unquote, for the old man catches the attention of another patient, Mr. Benjamin Kramer, who is played by Michael Byrne. And he observes that DuSantis is so lucky to have a boy like Todd in his life. 
And then uh, we do see that Mr. Kramer has a telltale tattoo on his arm. And uh, very quickly, well, not so quickly. I actually love how patient and drawn out the sequence with the Jeffersons is Mm -hmm. as Kramer realizes I also fucking recognize that face. And the scene of him falling into this nurse's arms and crying yeah. is devastating. I, mm-hmm. I will say, I kind of was like, well, that's really convenient that um, he just happens sure. to be next to the one Nazi that killed his wife and child. But it, whatever, dramatic sake. Um, sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree, though. Like, because Singer wisely holds onto this for a very mm-hmm. long time as he is crying into this nurse's arms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that's good. Like, is it showing like w- real pain because of what he has done? And it's not all mm-hmm. just Dusander fucking with Todd. You know, it's like he has actually hurt a lot of people. And I think this is one of the few that we actually get to see in the film. Yeah. And I, I love that he yeah. kind of embraces this pain. I also love that it's like, it doesn't matter how careful you are, it doesn't matter how well you have played Todd. You know, you Mm -hmm. got caught because you fucking did a whole bunch of bad stuff and people saw you do it, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 And Trace, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I think we often get a lot of mileage out of this. I think back to the plot of the Americans where the FBI agent moves in next to the Soviet spies who are undercover. Yeah. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. wrong place, wrong time. Totally get it. I guess in my mind, too, I'm just like, yeah, but it's like 40 years removed from the uh, Mm -hmm. from the war. So it's like, oh, he's in this town. Just but it doesn't matter. It works for the movie because the effect, the intended effect is successful. Yeah. Well, and I also think there's an element of like how many people he has hurt because there right. is nowhere mm-hmm. he can go where he won't run into right. somebody, you know, eventually. Exactly. It's why he had to forge everything. Exactly. Yeah. And why he never talks to anybody. Yeah, because he can't afford to risk the idea that any person he talks to might have a connection to someone he's killed because he has killed so many fucking people. Guess he should have moved to mm-hmm. another part of the country. Well, maybe nowhere was safe, though. Maybe, maybe, maybe every town has someone that he's killed. Well, yeah, I, I love this idea. To. I mean, I don't love the idea of how many people Nazis have killed. But, you know, obviously this is based in some historical reality where there were a bunch of Nazis who escaped persecution. They got away and they got to reinvent themselves. I love this idea that you will never be safe. You have committed Mm -hmm. these fucking atrocities and people will be on the lookout and they will export your fucking ass back to Jerusalem so that you can stand trial, even if you're an old man. You know why? Because you're a piece of shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and there's this element of like, it, it feels unfair. It feels like we're denied justice when somebody gets to just live a life for 40 years after this, you know, Mm -hmm. especially considering how many people lost their lives. But I do, I mean, we do see that he is not exactly happy. And granted, it's not nearly enough, but I think I don't necessarily read guilt for what he's done. I read like the consequences of what he's done is that he doesn't Mm -hmm. get to be a real person anymore, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, but that's a selfish reason. That's a selfish reason for him to feel that way. (laughs) Oh, totally, exactly. Well, he's an asshole, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A lot of assholes in this movie. A A lot lot of assholes in this movie. movie, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's introduce a couple of last-minute characters as we head into the wrap-up. So we have Israeli school teacher slash Nazi hunter uh, Westcock, who is played by. Uh, Jean Triska, mm-hmm. and we also have Agent Dan Rickler, who is played by 
personal favorite, Joe Morton. Joe Morton. Wait, wait, wait. Oh gosh, I love him so much from the okay, greatest wait, wait, wait. movie of all time, Terminator 2. What? Trace, do not say Scandal, say Terminator No, 2. that's what I was going to say. I was like, what do y'all know him from besides Terminator 2 and Scandal? <laughs> <laughs> that's all we need. <laughs> that's enough. Have you not seen those two performances? What's, what's it? It's, his name is like Mike Dyson, right? In term, is it Mike? Yes, yes Miles Dyson. Pinder Dyson. Yes. Miles, Miles Dyson. Thank you. Miles <laughs> Dyson, yeah. Oh, love uh, that movie so much. Yeah, no, I love him in that. Scandal almost made me hate him. <laughs> uh, because he's so I've, fucking good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he is good, but they kept him around for a very long time on wow, that show. Yeah. I mean, I stopped watching Scandal in the Middle, so I probably oh, left at the high point. I will say, oh, God. Well, he, he plays the main character. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, they kept him around for way too long. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> they milked that character for everything. He, he was just a husk by the time that show was over. Well, when you have Joe Morton, you got to keep him yeah. around. You know, this you go watch so those great. six seasons of Scandal, and when you get to the end, you tell me, Trace, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> Undoubtedly. Yeah. Okay, so basically, Dusander is caught, and he's in such a weakened state that he's not going to be able to get out of this. And I love that he tries to say, I'm an American citizen, and I have voted, and they're just like, sir, drop the phone mm-hmm. act. No, when he looks down and sees they've already got his fingerprints, it's like, uh-huh. ooh, you done fucked now! I love it. Okay, it's so but satisfying. here's what drives me nuts, and it is the same in the book. They come in and they say, hey, mister, we've got you dead to rights. You're going to suffer all of this pain, and it's going to be awesome, and we're going to get our vin- mm-hmm. vindication. And then they leave, and then they leave right. him to get away. And I'm like, what are you doing? Don't tip well, your hand. It's the 80s. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know any better. <laughs> We didn't know he could just, like, give himself a, an air embolism. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the... Not to be... What, in the book, yeah, what, in the book, how does he, he kill himself in the book? He steals medicine and overdoses. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Which, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, somebody that old, that is, of course, what they're going to do when you confront mm-hmm. them with the possibility of... Um, sure. Of being like dragged in front of uh, the tribunal and like your face is all over the world now, you know. It just I don't know. Mm-hmm. Poor planning on this instructor's part. Miles Pinder Dyson well, would and, never. So I'm gonna say something, and I'm gonna wrap it in caveats and context. I don't think that suicide is a coward's way out or anything nonsensy mm-hmm. like that. I think it's a very significant issue, but in this particular case. I do think it's a delicious coward's way out because here's this asshole who doesn't want to have to go through any kind of pain or suffering or be put on a public trial. And he decides, oh, you know what? I'd rather just end my own life. And I'm just like, you know what? You're pathetic. Oh, sure. I mean, but look, if I was in his position, I'd probably do the same fucking thing. And that's what I am missing in the movie, I think, that I really love in the book, because that is what he's thinking in the book. He's like, I'm I'm going to escape them. There's no way I'm going to suffer this humiliation. But then as he starts to sink, it's like the dreams he's been having that he's been trying to escape. He realizes, oh, this is hell awaits, essentially. And I wish we got a little Uh, bit of that in the movie. I don't know how you would do it, but like, I don't 
don't want the ghosts from Ghost to come pull him down. But. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> well, it's like yeah, because because the movie at this point hasn't been very surreal, um, and I feel like well, well I, I totally get where you're coming from. I would like to see something like that, or even mm-hmm. if like maybe it is he's having a dream and something morphs into something more sinister, and then like it's like he screams and bam, or I, I don't know. No, yeah. no, I love the fact that this is not ambiguous because he's very clearly dead, but. I do kind of enjoy the fact that this film doesn't take the easy way out with its Mm. characters. It suggests that they're both awful to the very end, but also it doesn't pass judgment. It's just that's who these characters are. They're awful. Yeah. 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 And sometimes people are awful and they die relatively easy deaths and they get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that sucks. So speaking of getting away with it, Mm. uh, Mr. French does catch on to Todd's lie, but Todd manages to get away because he is the valedictorian and he has to go and deliver his address. So yes, we have this terrible Icarus speech, which to me is so tone deaf and out of, it's out of sync with what the film is doing, right? Like we're not passing judgment on any other characters, but then we're doing this really obvious thematic thing i did not like this at all well what okay so let's okay (laughs) let's move on to the what what ends the film uh which because i did like this a lot more (laughs) okay so here's the thing i did like this but after going through all the Brian Singerness of it all and talking mm-hmm. about victims, believing yeah. victims, and blah blah blah, isn't it interesting that someone who is essentially a pedophile that just hasn't been convicted yet um, ends his movie with, "Hey, mm-hmm. look, victims lie to get what they want." <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they will frame a man with a mustache, innocent men mean. like mm-hmm. me. Yeah. yeah, it is again. I think this film plays extremely differently if you know about the accusations leveled against Brian Singer and through a contemporary lens. I imagine this was a kind of, ooh, it's almost like he's doing usual suspects. The bad guy's getting away with it at the end. Ooh, it's so nefarious. I think it's fascinating, right? Like this is another film kind of like Bound Trace, where when you look at it, the reception that it gets when it comes out initially compared to what we talk about now, completely different. It's like a completely different film. Yeah. And I, but I think, though, at least, it, well, I guess Brian Singer didn't write Usual Suspects either, but um, he didn't write this film. So it's like, right. OK, it's like he wasn't like doing this intentionally. But I mean, I, he well, did... but he was making changes yeah. to the script. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, hey, boys, um, you know, it'd be great if we lose <laughs> the gun shootout from the novel and mm-hmm. we frame a, an, an innocent adult for uh, being a pedophile. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like that this character survives. I didn't want to see him die. Yeah, but I'm. I'm like really conflicted about how I feel about this. And again, like removing the Brian Singer element of it and what, what Todd is doing, like he is terrifying in this scene and like the anger and the force in his eyes as Mm -hmm. he is just staring down David Schwimmer is, is really unsettling when you think about what he's going to go on to do and that he is going to completely get away with this. And he is going to learn all of the wrong lessons because of this. Like if I'm just, mean enough and strong enough and mm-hmm. deceptive enough, then I can do whatever I want. And I think the reason that I want, I don't want to see a shootout. I don't want to see a sniper situation. Right. But what I think we would gain if we got that 
was a more direct line between radicalization of kids like this and the actual consequences of it. Because it's not just Dusander dies, Todd's an asshole, he's going to keep being an asshole. Because we still have not mm -hmm. actually seen him kill anyone that wasn't connected to Dusander. And what mm -hmm. I like about the way King ends it is he explicitly makes this connection that like, no, connection to this evil creates another psychopath who is going to keep hurting people and keep like spreading yep. this evil in the world. And I think it's a little more ambiguous than I would like with the way this film ends. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. But I can see, I don't know. I don't know which way I would prefer it to go, you know? Almost a mix, right? Right. Yeah. Cause I can see benefits and drawbacks to both. And you know, we've got the books. We have the books ending like this movie doesn't take that away. So yeah. If anything, just to make another King comparison, it feels like to me, Todd is going to grow up to be Greg Stilson from The Dead Zone, mm -hmm. <laughs> the Martin Sheen character from the film, where it's yeah. like, oh, I can get away with this and I can be a terrible person. Oh, and you know what? Maybe I'll run for politics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and I mean, I could totally see somebody like Todd doing that. And I guess like... I Maybe I'm trying to remember what it was like in 98, but like, I just feel like we get so much of this like incel radicalization, um, like this kids like Todd just having guns and running around shooting women who won't like them. Like, I feel like we have mm -hmm. so much of that now that I want a direct line between that. You know, right. I want a film that says this is how that happens, you know? Mm. But I don't know if that's if that was the tone in 98. It's I'm having a hard time. I don't think so. Remembering how no. that would feel now, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's it. The assholes get away with it in both they instances. Do. And sometimes they do, you know? Well, we do close on a very haunting shot of Ian McKellen's dead-ass face. I'm sorry, dead space-ass face. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be specific in this film. Dude, when I learned that dead-ass was like a phrase that people use just to mean like seriously, I was like, what the fuck? Oh. <laughs> I, that's when I felt old. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, welcome to my world, Trace. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, so that that is at Pupil. Uh, Jen, as the guest of honor, any final thoughts on this film before we uh, close out? Um, I mm, it's hard to say I enjoy this film. I am glad this film exists and I'm glad the story exists. And I think if there is anyone listening who would have an issue watching Brian Singer's film, I think you can get the same messages and the same lessons and the same themes from King's novel, even though right. it has problems of its own. But I think, and I'm glad that we are talking about this because these are uncomfortable conversations and they are not conversations for everyone. And I think, always want people to take care of themselves and what they consume. But I think we only move conversations like this forward when we keep talking about it and when we keep mm, right. talking about the nuances. And so I'm glad that this film exists and that we're talking about it and that y'all were willing to kind of take on these really difficult conversations. Yeah. I mean, I... I wouldn't be surprised if anybody said, you know what, I tried to watch the movie, could not... I tried to listen to the pod and I could, could not. not, you know what, that is completely fair. But yeah, mm -hmm. I echo everything that you just said, Jen, it just seems like we can't bury our heads in the sand and say, Oh, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to have the conversation. I would prefer if people said, maybe that's not for me right now, or that's something mm -hmm. I can only dip my toe in or something. But I think we also need to get 
comfortable with the uncomfortableness because if not, yeah, it's too easy to forget or just sidestep. Like we need our comfort horrors, but at the same time, sometimes we need the confronting stuff as well. Yeah. And I, like, like what you kind of just echo what Jen said, you know, yeah, we can't just forget that these horrible things happen. That's where, where Holocaust deniers come from. Like we have to yeah. keep remembering these things, talk about these things because they did happen. And even though it sucks, like, these people deserve to be remembered. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I also think like it is important for people who are not directly triggered by it to keep the conversation going in a respectful way. It's always right. important for vil victims or survivors to share their own stories. But sometimes that's really fucking hard. And that's when we need mm -hmm. allies to step in and continue the conversation. And if you are someone who can watch and learn and continue talking about this, I think that it helps a lot. I don't think it's anyone's responsibility to do that. But I think it is a contribution, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, it's just like, again, like I, I'm not trying to toot our own horns here, but just having a candid reaction, an honest reaction and conversation about how we truly feel about these things mm -hmm. without the societal pressures about how we should feel about these things. Right. Yes. Yeah, completely agree. So... Anyway, okay. Well, now that that lighthearted conversation's out of the way, um, <laughs> oh. before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Jen, first of all, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this with us. Yes. But um, let everyone know, where, where can they find you on social media? Well, thank you again for having me on. This was a delight. And uh, you can find me, uh, Jen Ferratu, on all social places. Jen Ferratu with two N's. You can find me hosting the Losers Club podcast and the New Lady Killers podcast and co-hosting a couple of podcasts on the Anatomy of a Screen podcast pod squad so i will post it all if you follow me at jim Frotu. all right well if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horrorqueers shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com find us on letterbox to keep track of all the films we've covered go to our youtube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month if you want to chat with other listeners please join our facebook horror queers group and if you want to show us some love please rate and review us on apple podcasts or spotify or if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you will get about 266 hours of Patreon content, including Ooh. this month's new episodes on No One Will Save You, Totally Killer, Saw 10, Exorcist Believer, and our audio commentary on John Carpenter's classic, Halloween the Original. And it lives inside. Yes, and it lives inside. Sorry, totally forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a six episode month. You're forgiven. We have two $1 episodes. So y'all, if you want to like test it out, go give us a dollar and you get two episodes this month in addition to all the previous $1 content. Um, yeah, I think it's like 30 hours for yes, $1. Geez. It's a good amount for wow. $1. Um, Joe, mm -hmm. what are we talking about next week to uh, celebrate Halloween? There we go. Yeah. Uh, you know what? It just wouldn't be Halloween without Halloween. But mm -hmm. as much as we're going to have a delightful time talking about John Carpenter's film on the Patreon, we also wanted to dip our toe into a less celebrated text. So Trace, we're going to check out Halloween 2, but not the 1981 version. We're going to talk about Mr. Rob Zombie's Ooh. second attempt at Mr. Myers oh, boy. from 2009. Yep. Um, I, full disclosure, I will be re-watching both the theatrical cut that I have not seen since theaters and the director's Ooh. cut. Um, okay. They are two completely different films that have two very different goals. So again, if y'all are going to prepare for this, I would recommend watching both of them. Oh, but okay. if you only have one... 
stick to the director's cut. Okay. Yeah, I've only seen the director's cut, so maybe I will try to do both as well. I think they're both on that Screen Factory Blu-ray, but both of the both versions of this film are not easy watches. They're quite upsetting, but I'll just say that I I went from hating this movie in 2009 mm-hmm. to maybe not being a champion of it, but being like a huh, you know, it's it's not wholly successful, but I appreciate a lot of what Rob Zombie is trying to do in this movie. So it's like every Rob Zombie film. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, it's it's honestly like how you are with Hellraiser Bloodline, where I'm like, you know, it's kind of a mess, but I, I, I respect its audacity. <laughs> oh, I love an apologetic episode. Cool, okay. Uh, anyway, until next week, everyone, we can cross out apt pupil. Indeed, and cross out horror queers. Horror queers.